Amen. All right, well, welcome to Theological Equipping. We have uh, some pictures today. I love pictures. Those are my favorite kind of books, books that include pictures. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about justification. So this semester we've been talking about salvation, basically. Last semester we talked about specifically how Christ earned our salvation, and then this semester we're talking about how that good stuff gets applied to us. So we've been talking about things like election and reprobation, which are scary and heady, and we'll hear some more out of that from Romans 9 today in the sermon. But we've also talked about things like conversion, we've talked about regeneration, we've talked about all these different kind of things, and uh, today and then next week we're going to be talking about justification, okay? Next week Jeff's going to be uh, talking about a theology of justification and uh, looking at some biblical texts, Uh, but today we're going to be talking about a history of justification, and we're going to be going over uh, church history from the early church to the medieval church, to the Reformation era, but that's it. We're not going to get into the modern era yet. That's going to be a lecture a few Sundays from now. Uh, We'll talk about a big development in the modern era when it comes to justification. So, what is justification? Here's simply what you have to remember for this entire lecture this morning. Uh, Justification is simply trying to answer this question. How do we go from being enemies of God to friends of God? Justification has to do with either being made or declared right in God's presence, okay? Justification. Uh, In Greek, the word righteousness is the same word that our translators in English use for justified. So really it means something like righteified or to righteousness something, okay? So just realize that those words are linked in your New Testament when it talks about the righteousness of God making us righteous or something like that. Those ideas are linked. Uh, But in English, we typically separate these words. We have righteousness as one word and then justified as another, Uh, but those concepts go together. But today we'll be talking about the history of justification with pictures because that helps church history stuff stay not boring. Sound good? Does anybody know what that's a picture of, by the way? Cathedral of? Notre Dame. That's right. If it's the university, it's Notre Dame. If it is the uh, cathedral, it is Notre Dame. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, church history and uh, justification. So let's start by looking at justification. What did the early church believe about what somebody needed to do to go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God? That's really what we're talking about. How do you go from being a sinner on your way to hell to being an adopted, loved child of God on your way to salvation. That's what we're talking about with justification. So let's first look at it in the early church. Now, the early church didn't have a super clear view of justification because they were still hashing it out yet, or they were still hashing it out. They haven't come to a conclusion yet. So I want to give you some quotes on both sides, some that sound that it's very grace alone-ish, but some quotes that sound that it's a little bit works-based-y. Grace alone-ish and works-based-y, okay? Those are two real words. Look those up. Next. Let's look at this. Let's first of all look at a quote from Clement of Rome. This is a different guy than the Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Rome is a contemporary to the apostles. So he lives in the first century. So he is super close to the age of the apostles, which is interesting. 35 through 99 AD is when he lived, an early church leader. Here's what he says. Listen to this. This is encouraging. We are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works, which we have done in holiness of heart, but through faith by which the Almighty God has justified all who have existed from the beginning, meaning everyone that's come to him for salvation, that he's justified. So here we have a pretty early quote from an early church father saying, you're justified by faith alone. Great. Okay. Now, here's another one. This one comes from the epistle to Diognetus. This is an early Christian writing, which is actually a letter that was circulated in the churches defending the faith, all right, protecting the faith. It's kind of an apologetics letter, protecting the faith from skeptics and such. Here's what it says. For what else but his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and the ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? 
Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one uh, righteous man while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Okay? So here you have, and I could include a lot of other quotes. I'm just using these different quotes as examples. Here you have a few references from the very early church saying that you're saved by grace, that you have faith and that it's only God can do it because you couldn't do it. You were the one who was lawless. You were the one who was sinful. You were the one who needed God to do this to you, okay? But you also have some phrases in the early church that kind of go the other way. Look here. This comes from Tertullian. God accepts good works. And if he accepts them, he also rewards them. So a good work has God as its debtor, just as an evil deed has also. So where Paul will talk about grace being a gift, not as though works, because that's a debt, Tertullian's like, yeah, yeah, God's the debtor to these good works, okay? So you have that going on. Next, Justin Martyr, again, a very early, uh, early uh, church leader there. You'll see 100 to 165 A.D., Unless human beings have the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions. Okay? Not good. This is not good. Again, these guys are doing the best they can. They're hiding in tunnels. They're trying not to be killed by the Romans. They're trying to work out their salvation through fear and trembling. They're doing the best they can. So give them a little bit of grace. Here's another one. Theophilus died circa 185. We don't have his birth date, actually. God made man free and with power over himself, for as man disobeying drew death upon himself, so obeying the will of God, he who desires is able to attain eternal life for himself, okay? So here's what you have. The very early church is working through doctrine, okay? Everybody that has the Bible, here's why you can't, by the way, just say, I believe the Bible. Everyone will say they believe the Bible. You have to say, what does the Bible mean? And so the early church has the Bible, and what they're doing is they're trying to work through, what does this mean? I see these passages that say that I'm saved by grace, but I also know I'm supposed to walk in holiness. Is it some sort of combination of those? Is it one? Is it the other? What do I do? And they're wrestling through this. So the early church is not going to have a real clear, you can't say of the early church, everybody just believed this, okay? But it would be a debate that would come up at the end of the early church and at the beginning of the medieval church, which would actually solve and settle this issue for the rest of Christian history, okay? And that is the debate, debate between two men, Pelagius, yes, and St. Augustine, yay, okay, so these are the two guys, so let's talk about these two guys, there he is, and all his handsome heresy, uh, there's Pelagius, 360 to 420, uh, Pelagius was a British monk, and to this question, what do I have to do to go from sinner to saint, what do I have to do to go from being under God's wrath to being a friend of God, Pelagius' answer was literally, that you do more good deeds than bad, that you earn your salvation, that you do the things that God has asked you to do. So for Pelagius, he does not believe that you are saved by grace alone because Pelagius doesn't think that you're born sinful. Pelagius believes that you are born neutral. Man is born without original sin from Adam, and man is born without any type of original righteousness. He's like a blank slate. By the way, if you've ever heard somebody say that today in the modern era, that's Pelagian, okay? So you might have heard people say, well, I don't think people are born good or bad. They're just born neutral. That's what he thought, okay? If you're born neutral and you don't have to sin, guess what? You can keep God's rules if you'll just put forth the effort, if you'll just do a better job. If you're not actually in sin, like you're, if your nature was like Adam, where he doesn't have a sin nature yet because he hasn't fallen, where he can choose righteousness or not choose righteousness, just be better and choose righteousness, okay? Grace for Pelagius is that God gave you the Bible. That's what he means by grace. 
By grace for us as Protestants, we mean God gives us a gift. For Pelagius, God's grace is that he gave you the list of rules. It would be so mean if God condemned you and he hadn't given you a list of rules, but he gave you the list of rules, and so your job is to follow them, okay? Sometimes as a joke to somebody, if they mess up on something, I will text them and I'll just say, do better, Pelagius, okay? That's Pelagius, okay? So he is uh, British, he has a, uh, a small following, and he's starting to promote, promote this idea of a works-based righteousness, okay? That we're not born in original sin, because if we are, how could God hold us accountable? If you've ever heard somebody say something like this, well, I don't think God predestines people, because then how would he hold us accountable for our sin? That's Pelagian, okay? A lot of modern-day Arminians will argue that same kind of thing, not knowing that that's actually Pelagian. Let me give you some great quotes from Pelagius. Listen to how works-based he is, and listen to how much he doesn't think we're born in sin. Instead of regarding God's commands as a privilege, we cry out to God and say, this is too hard. This is too difficult. We cannot do it. We're only human and hindered by the weakness of the flesh. What blind madness, right? So he's saying when you're like, oh, I sinned. I'm weak because of sin. He's like, what is wrong with you? Stop being a girl. Try harder. Be a man. Step up and, and do. That's, that's Pelagius' thing, okay? That wasn't me... Throwing, a, throwing women under the bus, I was speaking as Pelagius. <laughs> women are great, and in my experience, typically more righteous than men, okay? But I was being Pelagius, because Pelagius would have also been somewhat chauvinistic, but that's a different era. We are not born in our full development, but with a capacity for good and evil. We are begotten without virtue as much as without fault. So notice what he's saying. He's saying when you're born, there's nothing in you that's good, and there's nothing in you that's bad. You're born as kind of a, a blank slate, a tabula rasa. A, uh, you're, you're just an, a white piece of paper, and you can write good deeds on there, or you can write bad deeds on there. That's Pelagius's view, okay? Nothing else makes it difficult for us to do good than the long custom of sinning that has infected us since we were children and has gradually corrupted us for these many years. What he's saying is you're born neutral, and you start doing bad actions— and then you just get into the habit of it, and you keep doing more bad actions. That, that's what Pelagius is saying, okay? If you were to practice instead good actions, well, then you would be better at doing good actions. You need to, you'll become like what you practice, and you're born morally neutral, and so you should just be doing better. Works, works, works. Better, better, better. Earn, earn, earn your salvation. That's Pelagius, okay? Next, he says, God has not willed to command anything impossible, for he is righteous, and he will not condemn people for what they could not help. That's Pelagius. Paul will say the opposite. Paul will say that you cannot keep God's commands, that those who are in the flesh do not keep God's commands, and quote, they are not even able to do so. The Protestant view is literally that God has commanded you to do things that you cannot do because of sin, okay? Not that are physically impossible, that are morally impossible, though, for someone who is a sinner, okay? For someone who is a sinner. Well, that's Pelagius. He starts to gain a, a following, and that causes a lot of problems. I don't know if you've been here for any of our Roman series, but we basically hold the opposite of everything he's just said, okay? And so there is a champion who arises in the early church, uh, and he will end up being the guy that is the most influential guy in church history after the time of the Bible. So other than like the apostles and such, the next biggest guy in church history is a guy named Aurelius Augustinus, St. Augustine, Okay. What St. Augustine does, he does a lot of things. He, uh, he basically defends the doctrine of grace. We'll talk about that. Uh, he studies the doctrine of the, Trin the Trinity for 22 years before he's done writing his book, De Trinitate. He solves the problem of evil. He proves the, the necessity of absolute truth. He's kind of a big deal, okay? 
He wrote the equivalent of 90 PhD dissertations. He wrote over 5 million words, okay? He is brilliant. He is powerful. And uh, he realized that what Pelagius was saying was false because of two things. One, because he knew his New Testament, and he knew that that's not what Paul says. But two, he had come out of a, pretty li- a life of pretty wicked sin. So he was just super licentious. He loved the ladies. He had a child out of wedlock named uh, Adeodatus. He lived with this woman who he never married for a lot of years. He would talk about how he would just go to different places to find women to sleep with. That was his thing. He loved ladies. He loved lust. That was Augustine. Okay? He actually has a famous prayer where he said that he prayed, God, make me holy, but not yet meaning I have to have some more fun first and then make me holy, okay? He got converted through reading the book of Romans, interestingly enough, and became, uh, ended up becoming a priest and then a bishop and these kind of things. And so here is his response to Pelagius. Listen to what he says. What is grace? That which is freely given. What is freely given? What do we mean by that? Given, not paid. If it was due, wages would be given, but grace would not be bestowed. But if it was really due, then you were good. But if, as is true, you were evil but believed on him who justifies the ungodly, that's a quote from Romans 4, consider what by right hung over you by the law that you have obtained by grace. By having obtained that grace by faith, you will be just by faith, for the just lives by faith. Augustine is going to say, contra Pelagius, that one, you're not born neutral, you're born sinful. You're born only able to displease God because you're born in Adam. And two, grace is not that God gave you his rules so you might follow it. Grace is that God gives you righteousness. He does all the stuff. You're a broken sinner, so none of the good stuff's in you. The good stuff's in God. And so how do you get it? By faith in Christ, okay? He says, for you did not obtain favor by yourself so that anything should be owed to you. Therefore, in giving the reward of immortality, God crowns his own gifts, not your merits. That's a great line. When God gives you salvation... He crowns stuff from him. He crowns his own gifts, not something in you, okay? For what good work can a lost person perform except so far as he has been delivered from damnation? Can they do anything by the free determination of their own will? When man by his own free will sinned, i.e. Adam, then sin was victorious over him, and the freedom of his will was lost. He's going to say that mankind was created with free will, but we lost that post-Adam because everybody born after Adam is born tainted with sin. Christ being the one exception, okay? And so we're born broken, we're born sinful, and so Augustine is gonna be the one that defends the biblical doctrine of grace. Uh, A lot of times Roman Catholics will give these major saints certain titles if they're doctors, if they're great thinkers in the church. And so Thomas Aquinas is the angelic doctor and John Duns Scotus is the subtle doctor because he makes all these tiny subtle distinctions when he writes. Uh, St. Augustine is known as the doctor of grace, doctor grace. His followers were called the Helpless love, what is it? Hopeless lovers of all or nothing grace. He is the big grace guy, okay? So here's the summary so far. What have we learned about the early church? Some in the early church realized that justification was a gift and that man was totally sinful, but some thought that, it, they were, that we were not quite spiritually dead. The church decided that Augustine's view was right and Pelagius was condemned at the Council of Carthage in 418, okay? So the view of the Christian church, Catholic and Protestant and Greek Orthodox, is that you do not earn your salvation. You do not put God in your debt. You do not make it where God owes you something. All three of those groups, they're going to disagree about how you get the grace. We'll talk about that in a second. But they're going to agree that you are saved by grace, that you cannot earn it. God just has to give you a gift because we are broken and we are sinful, and that's all going to go back to Augustine. Though he didn't invent it, he got it from Paul, and Paul got it from Moses, and Moses got it from God. 
okay? To be Augustinian is to hold God's view, okay? There you go. So that's Augustine. Next, so what happened? Okay, so that's uh, uh, Pelagius and Augustine. So here's where we're at so far. Early church was a little muddled. It would be this debate between these two figures that would really settle the issue, and the church came down on saying, you're saved by grace alone, meaning you can't earn it, it's a gift. There will be debate on how you get the gift coming up, but that's where we're at so far. You with me? You ready for another picture? Let's do it. Look at that. Cool. A lot of stained glass happening right there. Okay. Justification in the Middle Ages. Again, we're having to run through all of this. If we ever do something on church history or historical theology, we'll spend more time. So what happened in the Middle Ages? So time of Augustine's pretty great. Uh, What happens after that? Though Pelagianism had been condemned, the church began drifting into what is called semi-Pelagianism. Okay, what is semi-Pelagianism? So if you have Augustinianism over here that you're saved by grace alone, And you have Pelagianism over here that you're not born sinful and you're saved by your works. Semi-Pelagianism is kind of this in-between space. It's kind of this middle road. Here's what semi-Pelagianism believes. That you're born broken in sin, but not dead in sin. So you're sick with sin, but you're not dead. Paul's going to say in Romans that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can't choose anything. Sick people can still choose a little bit, right? So if I ask a dead person, please walk across the room, guess what's going to happen? They're not going to do it, typically. If they do, we've, we've entered that zombie apocalypse. You call Dan, everything will be okay, all right? But they're not going to do anything. But if you ask a sick person or a crippled person to walk across the room, they'll make it across the room eventually, right? There's still some life in them. So the church had begun drifting into what is called semi-Pelagianism, which is that if you will do your best, if you will do what you have, if you as that sick person will try your hardest, then God will give you grace, Okay? Then God will give you grace. There was an early synod in 473, the synod of Ahle, is how that's pronounced. Man's effort and endeavor is to be united with God's grace. Man's freedom of will is not extinct, but attenuated and weakened. Okay? Notice what they're saying. They're saying, well, we don't like Pelagius, but somehow your effort is going to be mixed up with God's grace. That's the idea of semi-Pelagianism. So I'll give you an example. Um, does everybody understand the difference when it comes to money between real value and ascribed value? Does everybody understand that? I feel like I've only understood this over the last maybe two weeks. I don't really know anything about economics. So here's the difference. So imagine when coins were made of gold and they were made of silver, okay? They had actual intrinsic value. That's actually why they would put the ridges around the coins is so people wouldn't chip off little pieces of that gold or silver and eventually melt it up and have gold and silver because they've been chipping off these little coins. So they put ridges there so you could know if somebody chipped off part of that coin. So that coin had real value. That gold is actually valuable. It's a rare, precious metal. Or that silver is actually valuable. It's a, it's a precious metal. Now, that is different than a currency that is like what we have in the United States. If you think that's based on a complete gold standard for every $1, you have this much gold for you, I don't think you understand how money works, okay? That piece of paper, how much real value does that have? If I just give you a piece of paper that's this size, how much is that worth? How much did that cost to print? Let's say a penny. I don't know, all right? Uh, Not very much. But if that's a $100 bill, that has an ascribed value that is super high, okay? Because the government has said, I agree that this will be worth this much within a society that trades goods and services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the market's always fluctuating and all those kind of things. So real value is how much that it's actually worth. And ascribed value is how much a society agrees that it's worth or a government agrees that it's worth. You with me? You with me so far? What they would say in the Middle Ages is that your good works don't have strong real value, okay? 
But what God has done is he has said that they have a high ascribed value. So when you try to do what's righteous as you're this person in the Middle Ages trying not to get the bubonic plague and you're just trying to please God, your actions don't have that much real merit, but rather it's like a $100 bill. God says, you know what? When I see a little bit of effort on your part, I count that as $100, okay? That's kind of the example that's been given in the, uh, in the Middle Ages. And so uh, you get this idea of, yes, God will give you grace, assuming, though, you do what is in you, assuming that you do your best. If you're a sick person, who tries your best, the doctor will give you medicine. But if you're a dead person, nobody's fully dead. Okay, that's the idea of semi-Pelagianism. Let me introduce you to another huge figure in the Middle Ages, uh, St. Thomas, Thomas of Aquino, better known as Thomas Aquinas. That's not his last name. That's a reference to the town that he's from. Uh, He basically combines the Bible and Aristotle, okay? He's brilliant. He's one of the most, he's the most influential uh, theologian after Augustine if you're Roman Catholic. The most influential theologian, if you're Protestant, after Augustine is uh, Martin Luther, but we'll talk about him in a second. But here's some things that St. Thomas said. Thomas says some really good stuff. We looked at him when he talked about predestination. He had some really good things to say about predestination, but uh, he also has some things here that he's committed that Pelagius is bad. He hates Pelagius. He says that explicitly, but he has some phrases that still sound a little too semi-Pelagian. Let me give you a few. There are four things which are accounted to be necessary for the justification of the ungodly. Number one, the infusion of grace, typically at your infant baptism if you're Catholic. Number two, the movement of the free will towards God by faith. Number three, the movement of the free will away from sin. And then finally, after you've done those three things, number four, the forgiveness of sins, okay? So notice that for him, it's a process. You do the best that you can do, and then God gives you the grace. Here's another famous phrase here. Facienti quod est Deus non denegat gratiam. God does not deny grace to the man who does what is in him. Okay? Here's what that phrase means. It's a very popular phrase in the Middle Ages. It means this. Grace is that God makes up where you lack. Grace is that you do your best, and then once God sees your best, he sees that little kind of worthless piece of paper, he ascribes to it value. Here's the question. How do you know, though, that you're doing your best? How do you know that you're trying your hardest? If God said to you, I will give you eternal life, but I need to see that you do what's within you, how do you know that you're doing enough? Couldn't you always pray more? Couldn't you read your Bible more? Couldn't you give more money to the poor? What are you going to do if, uh, I mean, if you have to do what is within you, how do you know that that's good enough? When have you done in say est? When have you done the, the, the best that's within you? And so this becomes a dominant view in the Middle Ages, okay? And so... Let's do a little summary. First of all, everybody take a big breath. We're about halfway through. You've made it, okay? Early church. Who can summarize what the early church held? Yeah, very early on, didn't know what debate eventually put a peg in the ground. Between which figures? Pelagius and Augustine, all right? Augustine being the hero that uh, defends the idea of grace. In the Middle Ages... Who can summarize what I had just mentioned? What is semi-Pelagianism? Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to say it. Kind of using Benjamin Franklin's God helps those who help themselves, right? That's kind of a good way to, to say that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the idea. The idea is that you're born sick but not spiritually dead. And the idea is that God does give you grace, but you have to do the best that's in you. you. God gives you grace at your infant baptism, and then your job is to use that will that's now been washed of Adam's original sin to try to choose what's right, and God will give you grace. 
and then you go to purgatory when you die to burn off the stuff you didn't get, but then you go to heaven. That's the idea. Okay? With me so far? Okay. Now let's talk about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. So we've covered about 1,500 years in about 10 minutes. Uh, eventually we'll spend again more time, hopefully, on these things. But today we're just looking at the doctrine of justification. Let's talk about justification in the Reformation. Okay? So the Reformation is considered to have started uh, August 31st, 1517. Last year was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Why? Because that is the date that a feisty, beer-loving German monk named Martin Luther nailed uh, 95 theses up to the church door on, in Wittenberg uh, to, uh, to have a debate over some of these things where he had thought that the Catholic Church was drifting, Okay. So, uh, we don't have time to talk about all these figures, but I'll show you a few pictures of them. I've tried to find, look at these happy, nice pictures. There are meaner looking pictures of uh, guys like Luther. But let's look at this guy. Martin Luther, 1483 through 1546. He's kind of a, a roundish fellow, okay? He, uh, he has no facial hair. You're, you'll, you'll realize it's one of his many flaws. Um, there's Luther. Let's look at a picture, another big player, John Calvin. You might have heard of that name. 1509 through 1564. He's a better theologian than Luther, hence his beard. And then the third man of the Reformation. So Luther is big in Germany. Calvin is big in a place called Geneva, which at that time was its own location. Today it's part of Switzerland. And then the third man of the Reformation is a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, who was really big in Switzerland. His was more of a moral reform, though, whereas Calvin and Luther were pushing for theological reform. Zwingli's big emphasis was on moral reform. His focus was not so much on things like justification. It was on that people needed to live righteously, uh, et cetera, things he didn't see in the church, okay? Now, we don't have time to cover all those. We're going to spend a little bit of time, though, on Martin Luther because he's going to have a big change of what's going on in justification. Let me give you some facts about Luther. If you want more information on this, we did a little conference uh, that's online uh, on the Reformation. Jeff talked about the five solas of the Reformation, and I talked about a biography of Martin Luther, but I'll just give you a few things on him here. He was born November 10th, 1583 in uh, Eisleben, Germany. His mom's name was Margaret. His father's name was Hans, which is a great German name. It's like the most German name, right? Hans, he was a miner. By that, I don't mean someone who's under 18. I mean somebody who works in the mines, okay? His dad was a miner uh, and was in charge over different mines and such in Germany. Uh, he was one of eight siblings, only four of which would make it to adulthood. He, uh, a dagger pierced his leg when he was 19 on a journey. He almost died. I wonder what the church, what world history would have looked like had Luther died at 19 instead of uh, growing into adulthood. But his dad was extremely harsh and legalistic with young Martin, Okay. He was the kind of dad that would beat you, that would say he's disappointed in you, that would uh, let you know that you can always do better. You know, he's the kind of dad where you have a B on your report card. Why isn't this an A plus? That's the kind of dad that Luther had. And so he saw God as very harsh. You have a tendency, if your dad's harsh, your human dad, you'll have a tendency to view God as really harsh. If your human dad's nice, you'll view God as nice, whatever. You have a tendency to view God as whatever kind of dad you had, which is actually backwards. But we have a tendency to do that, and Luther has a tendency to do that, okay? So Luther's dad makes enough money in the uh, mining business to send his son to study law in 1501 at the University of Erfurt in Germany. In 1505, so when he's almost done studying law, he's actually traveling uh, back uh, from the university, so to visit his parents, like you, like you do today. You go off to university, and then you come back home over the summer or whatever, and uh, Luther is caught in this huge lightning storm, right? Not just like you know, a little bit of rain, but like Texas storms, right? So there's like lightning and thunder, maybe hail. He's freaking out. And so he makes this vow to St. Anne. Who's St. Anne? The patron saint of minors, okay? So he cries out to St. Anne, St. Anne, if you will save me from this thunderstorm, I will become a monk. 
I will become a monk. And he makes it through the thunderstorm, and then he's like, oh, man, I made this vow. I have to keep it. His dad doesn't want him to keep it. His dad is further frustrated at Luther. Luther was going to be a lawyer and make a ton of money for the family, and now he's going to do, be some sort of weirdo religious ascetic, and he's going to become a monk, and so his dad is now further more upset with Luther, okay? Luther becomes a monk, and he is trying to make God happy. He becomes an Augustinian monk, so he's getting to read Augustine, which will be very influential in him. But as a monk, what he's trying to do is he is trying to do, quote, in say yes. He's trying to do what is within him. He's thinking, God will give me grace, but I have to do my best. And so he exhausts himself trying to earn the favor of God. He, to atone for his sin, sleeps outside in the snow one night. He used to take a whip and whip his own back to show God how sorry he was. When he would go to confession, to confess to the other priests, they would literally be like, you need to stop coming to confession so much. Come back when you have something, quote, real to confess, okay? That was the idea. Because he would step into the confessional, Father, forgive me, I've sinned. It's been five days since my last confession, whatever. And he would confess. And then as soon as he'd step out, he'd think, did I really mean that enough? If I really meant that, then why do I keep doing it? No, maybe I need to try harder. And he would step back in and do it again. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're like Luther in that way. And so he was exhausting himself trying to earn the favor of God. He said that if salvation could have been earned through monkery, that he would have been the person to do it. He even got a chance to take a trip to uh, Rome where supposedly the steps that Christ had ascended before Pilate had been moved from Palestine over into uh, Rome. And he climbed up those stairs on his knees, hoping that his knee would touch where Jesus' foot had been and he would feel absolved from his sins. And of course, that, uh, that didn't happen, though he did that. He continued as a monk. He became a professor of theology at the newly formed University of Wittenberg. And while lecturing on the Psalms and Romans, he came to a different view of justification than had been held in all of church history before him. Okay? Specifically, it was a passage from Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what Luther says about his view of, of learning about justification. So let me, let me summarize this way. If you're Martin Luther... What does the phrase righteousness of God mean? It means God is holy and therefore must damn you. That's what righteousness of God means. God's righteousness is God's own personal quality of righteous, that he must therefore judge sinners. He must therefore condemn the the wicked. So every time Luther is studying Romans, because he's got a lecture on it as a professor, every time he's studying Romans and he comes across righteousness of God, he's like, I get it, God, you hate me. You hate me, I hate me, we all hate me, I get it, okay? But then finally, he comes to this realization that the phrase righteousness of God is not just a reference to the fact that God is holy, but that God counts you as righteous by faith. That's his big shift. Everyone agrees God is righteous. Everyone agrees God is holy. Everyone agrees God should damn sinners. But what happens here as Luther studies, he realizes, wait, righteousness of God in Romans is something that's being credited to us. We're seen as having the righteousness of God. What does that mean? And he says this, it's called the Tower Experience. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. 
Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Okay? So what Luther is saying is, yes, God is holy and righteous, but he realizes that just by simple faith, not by doing your best, not by doing what's in you, you're a broken sinner, just by simple faith in Christ, you could now be seen as perfect. You could now be seen as righteous. That righteousness wouldn't come through doing all these other things. Righteousness comes as a gift through faith alone. The church already believed it was by grace alone, meaning you didn't earn it. Now the question is, how do you get the gift? Is it by doing your best, doing what's in you? No, it's simply by faith. Simply by faith, okay? Now there's a lot of interesting things to say about Luther. Uh, I'll mention a few. Uh, so the big thing that got him in trouble was he opposed the abuse of the selling of what were called indulgences. So let me explain what's going on. What you had at this time is you had the Roman Catholic Church building St. Peter's Basilica, okay, which is there in the Vatican City today. If you ever get a chance to go to Rome, go visit St. Peter's Basilica. It is beautiful. I've heard. I've not seen it. Jeff Ashley's been there like a hundred times. He has lunch there and stuff. It's, it's crazy. So, uh, but, uh, but St. Peter's Basilica is being built. And what you could do at this time is you could get what was called an indulgence. What is an indulgence? In Catholic theology, if you're a Christian, when you die, you don't go directly to heaven because in Catholic theology, you're not declared to be 100% righteous. That's not how justification works if you're Catholic. If you're Catholic and you die, before you go to heaven, you go to a place called purgatory. If you hear the word purge in the word purgatory, that's why it's called that, okay? It's a place to burn off the remaining defilement in your life. So let's say God demands that you be 100% perfect to go to heaven and you die and you're only 80% there. Well, take heart. You're not going to hell. If you're in purgatory, you're, you're going to make it, okay? It's just this long finish line, okay? Take heart. When you go to purgatory, though, you've got to burn off that other 20% because God will not allow imperfection within his presence. And so you go to purgatory, and you spend however much time you need to spend in purgatory, depending on how good or bad of a Catholic you are, okay? Well, what the Roman Catholic Church was doing is they were selling what are called indulgences, which were these certificates that allowed you to have, you or a family member, less time in purgatory, it's like a get-out-of-half-off card, basically, okay? So let's say you had a sweet grandmother, but she was like a terrible racist or something, and so she's going to purgatory for a 1,000 years. Well, they could come up and say, well, if you'll do some good deeds, like giving money to support the building of churches, not, not, not everything the Catholic Church is doing is somehow corrupt or whatever. They're going to say it's good to build churches. If you'll give some money to the church so we can build more churches and build St. Peter's uh, Cathedral, etc., we will... The Pope will give you this certificate, or it's given on behalf of the Pope, uh, to help get your grandmother out of purgatory quicker. Maybe she only spends 500 years there. Maybe she only spends 20 years there, whatever it is, instead of 1,000, okay? And so they're selling indulgences. There was a, a salesman in uh, Luther's territory, territory <clears throat> and, uh, in Saxony, and his uh, name was John Tetzel, Johannes Tetzel, and he was like the used car salesman of indulgences, Okay? He had these little jingles, you know, like, we don't care how you get here, just get here. Come on down to the I-35, whatever, you know, like they do. That's kind of what he was doing with indulgences. One was that for every coin in the coffer that rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Meaning as you put money in this, uh, this little money case, when you hear the money go ka-chink, you can almost hear grandma getting out of purgatory, right? For every, it's like every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. It's that kind of thing. Every time coins ring, less people are screaming in purgatory. And so that's kind of his sales thing. He said, quote, that uh, his indulgences could cover you even if you had violated the Virgin Mary herself, okay? So now imagine you're a German peasant 
you don't have a Bible in your own language. You don't even know how to read, right? Most people are illiterate, and you've lost a child. You've lost a family member that you love. And now here's a guy saying on behalf of the church, it's a chance to get this person to heaven quicker. How much money would you give? A lot. And so what Luther does, though, is he loses his mind over the abuse of indulgences. Luther, Luther initially is not against indulgences. He eventually will become against indulgences. He's still very Catholic at this point. But he's against their abuse. And so he's against the idea of using people's natural affections for their dead relatives to try to exploit them and make money. And so that's the issue that causes him to nail his 95 thesis up to the church door, the castle church in Wittenberg. And he had a lot of other things. I don't have time to go into them, just a few fun things. Uh, when he was eventually uh, excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church in 1520, he got that papal bull, which basically says, on behalf of all of the Christian church and the Pope, you're going to hell. Okay, that's the excommunication. And he takes that papal bull and he calls the town together and he burns it publicly. So he's feisty, okay? Uh, he was summoned to give an account for his views in 1521 at the Diet of Worms. I'll just simply give you a famous quote from that. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I trust neither Pope nor Council alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have cited, for my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. So basically, he is asked to recant, and he says, I can't do that. Unless you can show me through Scripture or logic, I can't recant, okay? Some people tried to kill him, and so his buddies kidnapped him and locked him up at a church in, uh, at, a, uh, at a, a, a castle called the Wartburg. So he's on his way back from this place where he's just been sentenced to death, basically. He's just been condemned. And his buddies come and kidnap him and lock him in the Wartburg castle. And why he's there, he changes his name. He calls himself Prince George, Sir George, Junker Jorg, okay? He starts wearing military clothing, amen. He grows a beard, and he translates the entire New Testament from Greek into German in just 10 weeks by himself while undergoing spiritual attack, okay? Pretty good. Okay? Again, all these guys in church history are just like way better than us. Anyway, in 1525, he married a former nun, which I love. He was a monk. He took a vow of celibacy. When he came to realize what the Bible said, he said, I forget that. And apparently this nun, who had been smuggled out of this convent in a fish barrel, cleanliness was not the thing back then, marries Luther. Her name was Catherine von Bora, Katerina von Bora. He called her things like Lord Katie, uh, my rib, uh, the old ball and chain, if you will, those kind of things. And so uh, when they got married, he was 41 and she was 26. Ooh, okay? He died at 1546 at the age of 62. He left his possessions to his wife, despite the fact that that was against Saxon law because she was a woman. Okay? So anyway, there's Martin Luther. Now, I've included some helpful charts uh, on your uh, handout I want you to look at. Okay? Two really helpful charts. Chart, just to summarize what we've been talking about. I want you to see the three main figures when it comes to the idea of justification are Pelagius, Augustine, and Luther. I want you to see their views. And then I want you to see the difference between a Roman Catholic and a Protestant view of justification. Let's first look at this chart. Pelagius. Boo. Notice that I put heretical next to him. No Christians today hold to Pelagius' views. The only people that do that are the cults, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, other religions, etc. That is an explicitly non-Christian view. That is already a condemned heresy. New Christianities are just recycled heresies. Just throw that out there. Okay, anyway. Pelagius, is salvation by grace alone? No, you can shout it out. Is it then by faith alone? No, obviously it's not by grace alone. It's also not by faith alone. Now, Augustine was good on the grace thing, but not good on how you get the grace. Look at Augustine's view. This is the Catholic view today. Is salvation by grace alone? Yes. Again, Augustine did not think you earned it. 
God is not saying, you have done these good acts as a human, and now, therefore, I give you salvation based on your acts as a human. It's only based on Christ, okay? So when you say, my Catholic believes in works-based salvation, not really. It depends what you mean, okay? Officially, they believe in Augustine's view, though it has a tendency sometimes to devolve into works-based salvation. Does Augustine believe that you get the grace through faith? No. Okay, you get it through sacraments, baptism, communion, penance, etc., extreme unction. You get it through charity. You get it through living as a good Catholic, basically. Okay? And then Luther's view. This is the Protestant view. If you're Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or whatever, this is the, uh, this is the, the most common view among Protestants. Is salvation by grace alone? Yes. Is salvation through faith alone? Is that grace received through faith? Yes. Okay? So let me, let me go over an illustration that Jeff used a few, uh, few weeks ago. Imagine that you have a water faucet, okay? And you are dying of thirst. He said water fountain. I got confused thinking that meant like big fountain. He meant like something you drink out of. So I'm gonna say water faucet, okay? So imagine that you're dying of thirst and you're out in the desert and you come across a water faucet, okay? Is the water faucet what makes you not thirsty? No, what makes you not thirsty? The water, okay? That's like the grace. Because we're sinners, because we can't earn salvation, grace is like the water, okay? What satisfies your thirst? Water alone. Augustine would say, water alone. Luther would say, water alone. The question is, how do you get the water? How do you get the grace? Well, for Augustine, you have to do certain things to turn on the faucet. If you'll do infant baptism, if you'll partake of the Eucharist and the Mass, if you will uh, do these other actions, that's what turns on the water, and then you can get the water. So the water alone, grace alone is what saves you, but you have to do things to turn on the faucet. You have to do uh, these kind of, yeah. So you, you have to, it's not just received through faith alone. For Luther, he believes that you're saved by the water alone. How do you turn on the faucet? Believe that the faucet's on. How do you turn on the faucet? Simply by faith. Repent and ask the faucet to turn on. That's what you do, okay? That's the difference. So one is the actual formal cause of your salvation, the water, the grace. Catholics believe you're saved by grace alone. Protestants believe you're saved by grace alone. The question is, how do you get the grace? How do you get the good stuff? For a Catholic, it's through sacraments plus works of charity plus other catholic things. For Protestants, it's by faith alone. Faith for Luther is where you stop calling God a liar. When God says that anybody that comes to Christ will be saved, you stop saying, God, are you a liar? Is that really going to happen? Don't I need to do my best? Don't I need to try my hardest? Luther would say, no. You just need to fall on your face and ask God for mercy. So with that in mind, let's look at the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant view of justification. Here are the differences, okay? In Catholic theology, justification is synergistic. That's just a fancy term that means there's a cooperation. There's two energies, two powers involved, God and you. You do the preliminary work, and God does the rest, okay? But in Protestantism, it's monergistic. Mono means one, ergon means energy or work. It's God and God alone that is doing this when he regenerates you. In Catholic theology, it's progressive. You become more and more justified, okay? Who's more justified, me or Tim Hollis? From a Catholic system. Certainly me. (laughs) Right? But from a Protestant system, who's more justified? We're equally justified. If you're in Christ, you can't be more in Christ than another person. I'm equally in Christ with Tim. Despite outward appearances... That's what's going on in a Protestant system, okay? Uh, Notice that it is uh, 
it is instantaneous also with, uh, with, with Protestantism. So in Catholic thinking, you're, you become more and more justified over time. So let's say you, God demands you be 100 good points. You get five of those when you're baptized, two of those when you take communion, two more of those when you do, uh, you know, uh, confirmation, two more of those when you do confession, whatever. And then if you die with 90 good points, well, you go to purgatory to burn off the other 10. In a Protestant system, you're declared to be 100% righteous instantly just by repentance and faith. It's not progressive. It's instantaneous. At the moment you ask for it, you have it. As righteous as Christ. You're not just basically good. You're seen as perfect as Christ. You're in Christ. What's true of him is true of you. Okay, it's instantaneous. In Catholic thinking, it's imparted, meaning it's something you actually become. We'll see that in a second. In Protestantism, the phrase is it's imputed, meaning it's credited to you as Paul would say, that you're reckoned as righteous. You practically are not perfect. You still commit sins from day to day in your day-to-day life. But in God's eyes, the only opinion that actually matters, you're seen as perfect. It's imputed to you. Uh, Notice the the elaboration of that on the next one. Something you actually become in Catholic theology. You become more and more justified. In Protestantism, it's something you're declared to be. In Catholic theology, it is intrinsic. There's such thing in Catholic theology of what's called real intrinsic merit, which means this. As I become more righteous, I'm more worthy of God's love because God has to love what's morally good. And so there's this idea that righteousness, in some sense, is intrinsic to me. In Protestantism, it's extrinsic. It's outside of us. It's what's called an eustitia aliana, an alien righteousness. That doesn't mean the uh, righteousness of someone like E.T. That means a righteousness that comes from outside. It's not inside to me. It's outside. Christ is righteous, and I'm seen as being righteous when I'm in Christ, okay? In Catholic thinking, it's greater in some than in others, whereas in Protestantism, it's equal in all believers, which I just joked about. And then lastly, how do you get it? In Catholic theology, it's by faith plus the sacraments plus works of love, whereas in Protestantism, it is by faith alone, okay? Now, what is the response? What do Catholics today believe? Well, in the 1960s, you had what was called the Second Vatican Council, and uh, the Catholic Church decided that those who are Eastern Orthodox and those who are Protestant are no longer heretics. Yes, we made it. But rather, we are considered separated brethren, okay? So the official view of the the church today is that you can be a saved Protestant, uh, that Protestant and uh, those that are Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox all get to be considered Christians, not heretics. Uh, But that is not the official view that the church came up with right after the Reformation, which they've still not gotten rid of, okay? That is known as the Council of Trent. There's a great picture of, I'm sure, that's just a photograph, I'm sure. I'm sure it looked just like that. It was a meeting of 40 Catholic clergymen that met 25 times over 18 years and developed a condemnation of Protestantism, okay? So you can't be Martin Luther and turn the entire world upside down and not have somebody challenge you. And so he was challenged by several guys, two of which had the exact same name, John Eck. He fought one John Eck at one battle or at one debate and another John Eck at another. Just stay away from people named John Eck. But anyway, here's what the, the Council of Trent decided. Listen to how anti-Protestant these are, okay? If you're a Protestant, these will make you mad. If you're a Catholic, these will surprise you that these are uh, actually officially still on the books. If anyone says that by faith alone the impious are justified, that nothing else is required to obtain justification, and that it is not necessary to use one's own will, let him be anathema. That means damned, okay? So they're saying if you believe in justification by faith alone, you're damned, If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing but confidence in divine mercy, that's how Luther would have defined it, let him be anathema. If you think you just need to rely on God's mercy to have it, condemned ye, 
okay? Next, if anyone says that a man born again and justified is bound to believe that he is one of the predestined, let him be anathema. We would say that you should have assurance. If you're a Christian and you love Christ, guess what? You're elect. Don't freak out. Welcome. Rest. Relax. Sleep like a Calvinist. But they would say anathema. If anyone says that man is absolved from his sins and justified because he believed himself absolved and justified, let him be damned. Let him be anathema. These are very anti-Protestant sayings, okay? If anyone says that a man once justified can sin no more or lose grace, and he who sins was never truly justified, or that he can avoid all sins, even venial sins, except by special privilege from God, as the church holds regarding the Blessed Virgin, let him be anathema, okay? What this is going against is this. It's this idea that we believe that once you're truly saved, if you're really a Christian, you'll always be saved. You can't lose your salvation, okay? Now, you can be somebody who looked saved but walked away and showed that you never were, but you didn't have salvation and lost it. You never had it. They're saying if you hold that view, that perseverance of the saints view, may you be anathema, okay? God can give a special privilege to you like he did to the Virgin Mary, but uh, for the normal person, that's not for you. Two more. If anyone says that justice received is not preserved and increased before God through good works, but the works are the fruits and signs of justification and not a cause of the increase, let him be anathema. Will you still stand before God in judgment as a Christian, as a Protestant? Yes, but it's because your works evidence whether or not you are a Christian, not because they cause your salvation. Do you understand the difference? Christ causes your salvation, and the fruit of that is good works. It's not that the, your good works are somehow the cause of your salvation or your justification, okay? They're saying, though, that if you just hold that your good works are evidence of faith and not the actual cause of salvation, at least to some extent, may you be damned. And then lastly, if anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out, that there remains no debt of temporal punishment to be discharged in this world or the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. Meaning, if somebody repents and trusts in Christ, I say to them, your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. They're 100% forgiven. There's no more wrath for you. Will God discipline you because he loves you? Sure, but discipline is good. It means you're part of the family. But does God ever punish you for sin because of his wrath in this life or in the next? No. There's no more punishment for Christians. There's discipline, but not punishment. Punishment has to do with wrath. They're saying if you hold that, that is condemnable, anathema. So there you go. In 53 minutes or so, a history of justification. Jeff, come on up here for questions. As he does that, I'm just going to summarize real quick because I know that's a lot of information. Early church has kind of a muddled view on justification. It's really the debate between Pelagius and Augustine that settles that it's by grace alone. The medieval Catholic church drifts from that and starts to think that it's semi-Pelagian. You do your best, and then God gives you the grace Augustine talked about. With the Reformation, Luther says, no, it's by grace alone, and it's received through faith alone. The church eventually condemns that idea, but post-1960, everybody's friends. Jeff, okay, there you go. 